Talk 1110-993 WBT, uh, hour number three underway. And uh, going over some of the, we've got a major energy legislation. Governor Roy Cooper, the Senate President Pro Tem Phil Berger, and the Speaker of the House Tim Moore, uh, along with the Democratic Senate Leader Dan Blue and the House Democratic Leader Robert Reeves. They've all reached an agreement on key energy legislation. Uh, we will get into that. Uh, we welcome to the program the uh, Speaker of the North Carolina House, Tim Moore. Welcome back to the show. How are you, sir? I'm doing great, Pete. How are you today, sir? I, I am doing well. I, and I know I start off like almost every conversation saying this, but I was in Cleveland County again this past weekend. You guys got another Ingalls grocery store that I visited. Um, it's like you know, <laughs> there's there's a lot of house. Well, actually, there's not many houses for sale, but I'll help you find one because there's not a better place to live in this state. And so, you know what? You you come on over here, and you can actually start broadcasting. And besides, the, the air is a little more freer over here than it is in Mecklenburg County. Just say it. That's right. You you do say that. That's true. So, um. Let's talk a little bit about the budget. I'm not taking it personally that I had you on the air Tuesday, and then the very next morning you guys announced a budget deal. I'm just going to believe that you came to some sort of a framework understanding after we spoke, and it wasn't intentionally uh, against me. Your your words actually helped put us over the top. You made it happen. I mean, I didn't want to be presumptuous, but I feel like I played a role. Of some yeah, sort. you did. There, there's a whole section in there dedicated to you. In fact, it's all those great tax cuts. How yeah. about that? Uh, that'll work. That'll work. Not uh, so. Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about the framework. Can you divulge any details of it um, that you? And this is what you and the Senate, uh, you guys agree on this. Uh, and what does the framework mean in this budget process? What does this development mean for people? Well, so what it, what it does is, uh, and again, we're keeping a lot of the details at this point confidential so that we can have some very frank uh, discussions with the governor. Uh, but what we what we have in there is, is very significant tax relief for businesses, uh, for small business, uh, really a lot for families. We also have taken a lot of the money, the, the one-time federal dollars, and instead of using them to create all these you know, entitlement programs that's happening in a lot of the blue states, we're using them for one-time things like road repairs, improving bridges, um, uh, a lot of capital and construction, really putting those funds out to things that will that are one-time expenses that will pay a lot of dividends. Anybody who sit, who sat in traffic long enough knows we have some issues with our road funding in the state, so we're putting a record amount into that. Really, just trying to use that one-time money for one-time expenses and fixing a lot of things where the can's been kicked down the road for a long time. One of the things the governor has been uh, using as leverage in all of these budget. Uh, debates over the years has been the expansion of Medicaid. I was just going over uh, a big write-up by uh, a senior research strategist out of the Mercatus Center at George Mason University talking about how uh, the the spending plan the, uh, up in D.C., this massive expansion of the health benefits, particularly Medicaid, uh, Medicare as well, and Obamacare subsidies, but this is the major driver of the structural problem we have with the, the budget up there. Um, is this is this something that's on the table in North Carolina for expanding Medicaid as many other states already have? Let me tell you, one of the big problems that we have right now is this mentality of paying people to stay home instead of going to work. Uh, you see help-wanted signs, uh, yet you have people who simply refuse to go to work. 
and and Biden and these these liberals that are there have absolutely they're just destroying our economy and the work ethic. And I'm resisting at, and fighting at every level uh, any type of expansion of entitlement programs and and any incentive that incentivizes someone to stay home and live off of the government instead of going to instead of hitting the lick and doing a job. Um, and so anytime that stuff has come up before, we've always opposed it. Uh, one of the things that's really concerning to us is that the this federal, they're calling it the stimulus bill. It's not. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a train wreck. But this federal bill that's there would basically mandate or require, as I understand, a lot of the enhanced Medicaid coverage that's out there. And so I've got a real problem with that. Uh, so what I can tell you is that I'm resisting any of that now. Um, and, and so I, I'm not agreeing to that, uh, at least at this juncture. And so uh, we're going to continue to oppose it, and, and we'll see how things go. But I, I assume uh, that that will be an ask of what was before. But, you know, uh, that that was – we were put in that situation last time, mm-hmm. and instead of going down that road, we just didn't even have a budget. We did not expand it because we did not want to do anything to incentivize someone from going out and getting a job does it seem like the does it seem like a budget deal can happen this year maybe versus last year or the year before or the year before or the year be- <laughs> i believe so so i believe so because there is so much federal money uh and there's so much money there that can be used for other things and so i i am optimistic but i will tell you that if we get in a position where we get jammed up over this medicaid expansion again uh, it will it will probably very quickly dim the hopes uh, of getting a budget. But, you know, I want to go into it. We haven't even sat down to negotiate with the governor yet. We know where the governor is. Um, and so we're reviewing the governor's positions, which I'll keep confidential for now. But uh, uh, but we'll we'll start those negotiations in earnest on Wednesday of this week, which, well, that's tomorrow. So tomorrow. Yeah. So um, some good news in the uh, on this front, right? You and the Senate. And the governor, you guys are, or Senate Leader Phil Berger, you guys are all in agreement about uh, 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 the clean energy course for North Carolina. Uh, so uh, it is possible, right, uh, for the for the legislature and the governor to get together and come up with these uh, this kind of grand framework for uh, for a deal, right? It is possible. That's that's correct. And so this is, and you think about one of the more contentious issues that we deal with has to do with energy policy in this country. And and I'm very pleased that we were able to reach a deal with the governor uh, and with the Senate that uh, is another step toward energy independence for this nation um, and also making sure that the rates that individuals and businesses pay are reasonable and affordable and that while it also allows for green energy, which, which we need to have, it also maintains the, uh, uh, the right and, in fact, the marketability for uh, the, the for the utilities to continue to use any other any other energy source you know, like uh, natural gas um, um, you know co- of course coal is gradually just sort of being phased out but use the coal plants that are there and then of course nuclear so not just relying on one one thing or another uh, what we've what we've seen uh, time and time again is that you need to have redundancy both in your power uh, resource and in terms of your grid so uh, this is really a solid policy, I think, that's uh, pleasing to most folks. The only folks who've come out against it now are the far left. They really are against it because they wanted to see a lot more of the 
they wanted to see basically a Green New Deal. Yeah. And uh, you know, our legislature is not going to pass something like that. Yeah. Um, and what of the, uh, I remember uh, after the, the pipeline problems a couple of months ago, there was a, uh, I think, a Senate hearing on the matter, and they showed this map, and like North Carolina just does not have pipeline infrastructure for some reason. And so is there any, uh, is there anything in there to, to kind of beef that up? So that's that's not really addressed specifically in this. It's certainly the pipeline access has continued to be allowed. There are those on the left that wanted to restrict and, and bar pipelines, but of course we didn't do that. The, the biggest problem with pipelines right now, though, is not state policy. It's 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 the federal law. It's the things that are coming out of the of the Biden administration. It's the bureaucracy, the refusal to grant the permits for these pipelines. And look, pipelines make sense. It's the it's the it's the safest. And the cheapest way to transport uh, these fossil fuels. I mean, because right now what's happening is they're either put up, being put on trucks or put on rail cars, and they're being shipped down. Uh, and pipelines make sense, but the hypocrisy of the left, you know, the of the folks who show up at the, my office to protest, driving their driving their Subaru or whatever, showing up there to protest, driving that fossil fuel vehicle, talking about how we need to get rid of it. Well, then why didn't you ride a bike to come up there? I mean, it's it, it, the point is, is that we have to have fossil fuels. Vehicles are clearly going more toward electric vehicles. You can see that over time. Uh, but you know, the, the notion that you're just going to stop stop fossil fuels, the notion that you're going to somehow uh, encourage something by making gas more expensive, by by making it so that you can't get access to this, is ridiculous. We need to trust the market. We need to allow the the to use, the use responsibly the natural resources of our country. And, you know, we need to have market-based approaches that make sense. And uh, I think that's, that's you know, the problem right now is we have a president that just doesn't see things that way. Uh, Speaker of the North Carolina House, Tim Moore. Always good to talk with you, sir. Thanks so much, and we'll uh, touch base with you next week. Take care. All right, good luck on the budget. <laughs> All right, that's uh, Speaker of the House, Tim Moore. This is Boomer Von Cannon with Traffic. So where were you when you weren't on Facebook yesterday for like six hours? I got to tell you, I didn't even notice. Except for when I saw a tweet that said, hey, Facebook is down. And I went over and I typed in Facebook and it wasn't on. And I was like, oh, look at that. It's down. That's it. And then it came back. And I was just getting ready to start like gloating and celebrating. And then it it came back. So I couldn't. But uh, apparently... Uh, Facebook's founder, Mark Zuckerberg, has apologized for the disruption that uh, its social media services failing has caused people, or did cause people, went down for about six hours, impacting more than three and a half billion users worldwide. And I don't know if it really impacted three and a half billion users worldwide. It didn't impact me, and I'm one of those users, so... But I, I get the idea. It's a way that they could say in this report by the BBC that they have three and a half billion users. Facebook, Messenger, uh, WhatsApp, and Instagram, they all went down. Zuckerberg was uh, reportedly uh, reported to have lost somewhere around $6 billion from his personal fortune at one point as the shares of Facebook plummeted. And uh, a website called Down Detector, which tracks outages, said about 10.5 million problems were reported around the world. That is the largest number it has ever recorded. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I mean, it did have an impact. Um, 
Facebook said that it got taken down. It was brought offline by a faulty configuration change, which not only impacted the website and the apps, but also affected the company's internal tools, um, like employee passes. They couldn't even get into the building and stuff. The New York Times reported that uh, the problem was eventually resolved after a group managed to get into a California data center and reset the servers. So, like, you know, they, they brought in, like, the grizzled, old, you know, coder. And he's like, did you try Control-Alt-Delete? You know, and they're like, what, huh? They just manually reset the whole thing. Now, the company has not confirmed it, and it's in the New York Times, so who knows if it's true. Facebook said it's working to understand what happened so it can make our infrastructure more resilient. Now, look, part of the problem, like, that I have, this is, like, I don't like cloud storage i don't like it i understand the concept i recognize the value i'm still not a fan i prefer to have my stuff stored in a place that i can hold it and i can transport it and i have control over it and it's not just out there in the ether you know that's just me i so like i saw this happen and that's the first thing i thought was like somebody's in the clouds and they're messing with stuff. That's the first thing. Now I have heard some conspiracy theories floating around out there that, uh, this was all meant to somehow or another be useful. I don't know how in what happened today on Capitol Hill and what had happened on Sunday on 60 minutes where a former Facebook employee named Francis Haugen H-A-U-G-E-N, Haugen, Haugen, Haugen. Anyway, she told CBS that the company had prioritized growth over safety. And so she went in to testify today. And uh, she, uh, she used to work there. She's a former product manager on Facebook's civic misinformation team. So that, okay, so think about the kind of person that works for Facebook's misinformation team the civic misinformation team okay all right by the way this is uh, the part of the topic discussion where i say you don't have to pick a good guy or bad guy in a story just a heads up <laughs> there's there's not always somebody who's wearing the white hat and the black hat right it, it you could just have varying degrees of black hats and so uh this person um, says that the social media giant keeps its algorithms and operations a secret. And so she, before she left, she swiped a whole bunch of documents and has been providing them to the Wall Street Journal. And then she outed herself on 60 Minutes on Sunday. And now uh, today she ended up on Capitol Hill to testify. She's a former product manager for Facebook civic misinformation team. She said the core of the issue is that no one can understand Facebook's destructive choices better than Facebook because only Facebook gets to look under the hood. A critical starting point for effective regulation is transparency, she said. On this foundation, we can build sensible rules and standards to address consumer harms, illegal content, data protection, anti-competitive practices, algorithmic systems, and more. This was from her statement to Congress. And then I came across this from Luke Rosiak, and I believe he is with the Daily Wire. 
The Facebook whistleblower is a donor to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez with a history of raising bias concerns at previous employers. She's also working with Jen Psaki's old PR firm and the lawyers who represented the Ukraine whistleblower, I guess that would be Vindman, working with them. <clears throat> also, it sounds like her major beef is that Facebook gives non-lefties a platform. Yo. All right, so Frances Haugen, she's a former product manager on Facebook's civic misinformation team. And she testified on Capitol Hill today. She's been uh, revealing a whole bunch of internal documents to the Wall Street Journal. She went on 60 Minutes this weekend. And um, a lot of the focus the Wall Street Journal did was on Instagram and its harm to teenage girls. We've known this for a while, by the way. I mentioned this yesterday, too, I think. The journal's stories showed the company contributed to increased polarization online when it made changes to its content algorithm. It failed to take steps to reduce vaccine hesitancy and was aware that Instagram harmed the mental health of teenage girls. Okay, so these three things, it contributed to increased polarization online when it made changes when it made changes to its content algorithm. Now, anybody who works, uh, you know, the peek behind the curtain here, anybody who works in media as we do here knows how Facebook messes around with content creators. We are content creators for Facebook, okay? Every radio station is a content creator. Newspapers are, TV stations are, right? You are as well. But when you get to scale, when you are at a scale of like a major broadcast company, then Facebook is a really big part. uh, Well, let's say a partner. Yeah, we'll say a partner in how you distribute content. Years ago, Facebook started telling newspapers, for example, hey, you guys need to move to video, move to video. You notice that this happened, right? All of a sudden, all these newspaper uh, websites, everything's video. It still is, right? Or all these videos. All right. When is the last time you watched a video on a newspaper's website, a video about the story? Not like a video of, hey, we got this video. It's undercover video. Or, hey, look at this, you know, police body camera footage from this, you know, and here's the video. Or, uh, hey, look at these people that followed Kristen Cinema into a bathroom. Watch the video. I'm not talking about that kind of video. I'm talking about a video of the story, right? Where somebody records a video of the story or they're trying to, like, be a TV report at a newspaper site. Do you watch those? I don't. I read a lot of newspapers every single day. I don't think I have ever watched one of the videos that they embed in their website. Now, maybe their web hits tell them that this is something good, but that... That all came about with this whole push into video. Facebook was all in on that. And what Facebook did was they convinced a lot of these publishers to hand over the keys to the kingdom, what turned out to be, hand over the keys to Facebook. 
and let them distribute your product. So you don't have to worry about uh, the emails, the newsletters, all that stuff. Don't worry so much about that. We'll take care of that. Because remember, in the early days of the Internet and blogging, right, you would get all these newsletters and stuff. Now, look, I get one from the Charlotte Observer. I get their newsletter, um, the AP as well. But they're, you know, these are the headlines that they send out now. Um, but they relied on for many years, like a lot of these publishers relied on Facebook to distribute their content. And then what did Facebook do? They changed their algorithm. And they said, you guys are basically abusing our platform and we want to encourage more authentic dialogue, more interaction. And so if you were just cranking out content and publishing it and pushing it out on Facebook and nobody was interacting with it, they would move your stuff lower in people's feeds. And sometimes they wouldn't see it at all. So you had to have people interact. I believe this is still the case. You got to have people interact with your stuff. You got to have people that comment and then other people have to comment to them. And then the algorithm sees this discussion and it boosts your, uh, uh, your story higher up into people's timelines. But it doesn't know what you're saying, right? It just sees interaction. So if you're on there screaming at each other, calling each other terrible names, or better yet, you're just on there talking about how you make all this money from home and how if you just write me, you can find out how to make all this money from home, right? <laughs> if you just have enough of those types of responses, the algorithm sees it and pushes it up. So the company's leadership knows ways to make Facebook and Instagram safer, this woman says, but it won't make the necessary changes because they haven't put their immense profits, or sorry, they have put their immense profits before people. It is accountable to no one. So this is where she's coming from. She says that they choose profits over safety. And she wants government to come in and regulate Facebook. Okay, this gets to the Section 230 debate. And I've not really delved into it on this show. I have in the past. I did a podcast about it and it aired uh, on the weekend here on WBT, I guess a year ago or so. But um, I am not on board automatically with this idea that we need to tear down Section 230 and make uh, make these all publishers. I, I'm not on board with that. And here's why. I think it actually harms conservatives first. And I actually think that a lot of these big tech companies want government involved. I think they want government in there to regulate them because it will constrain the market. It will block disruptors. That's what I think is going on here. So I'm not, in, and I know I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I am reserving judgment right now on who this whistleblower is because I'm not entirely convinced that this doesn't actually work in Facebook's favor. If this isn't the way, because look, Democrats want to get in here and they want to blow up Section 230 as well. Democrats want to blow up Section 230, but they want to go further. They want to make these companies uh, engage in tougher, more onerous censorship, particularly of the right. That's where Democrats want to go with this. Whereas people on the right say, we want to blow up Section 230 and and we don't like big tech because they censor conservatives and they advance and protect left-wing dogma and ideologies. And the right wants that to stop. So 
when here comes this Facebook person who is like, Facebook is terrible. They're putting profits over safety. Does that sound like a conservative argument to you? Does that sound like something Republicans would be advancing? Boo, profits. Right, then we find out that this woman is also a huge donor to AOC. What does that mean? She's a socialist. That's what a donor to AOC tells me. So one of the things about Facebook, it has more humans. If you think of it like a country, it has more humans than the two most populous nations, China and India, combined. Isn't that amazing? Users are cogs in an immense social matrix, fleshy morsels of data to satisfy the advertisers that poured $54 billion into Facebook in the first half of 2021 alone, a sum that surpasses the gross domestic products of most nations on Earth. Here's a piece by Adrienne LaFrance, uh-huh. and uh, it's in The Atlantic. The largest autocracy on Earth is the piece. This woman is of the left. She says GDP makes for a telling comparison, not just because it gestures at Facebook's extraordinary power, but because it helps us see Facebook for what it really is. Facebook is not merely a website or a platform or a publisher or a social network or an online directory or a corporation or a utility. It's all of those things. Facebook is also effectively a hostile foreign power. This is plain to see in its single-minded focus on its own expansion its immunity to any sense of civic obligation, its record of facilitating the undermining of elections, its antipathy toward the free press, its rulers' callousness and hubris, and its indifference to the endurance of American democracy. I see, as I mentioned, she's of the left here. Some of Facebook's most vocal critics push for antitrust regulation, the unwinding of its acquisitions, anything that might slow its snowballing power. But if you think about Facebook as a nation state, an entity engaged in a cold war with the United States and other democracies, you'll see that it requires a civil defense strategy as much as regulation from the SEC. Hillary Clinton told me last year that she'd always caught a whiff of authoritarianism from Mark Zuckerberg. Quote, I feel like you're negotiating with a foreign power sometimes, she said. He's immensely powerful. One of his early mantras uh, at Facebook, according to uh, a book called An Ugly Truth Inside Facebook's Battle for Domination, was, this is what Zuckerberg would say, company over country. When that company has all the power of a country itself, the line takes a bit of a darker meaning. The basic components of nationhood go something like this. First, you need the land. Then you need the money. Then a philosophy of governance and people. And those, that, those are the things you need, right? Land, money, philosophy of governance, and people. When you're an imperialist in the metaverse, you need not worry so much about the physical acreage. Though Zuckerberg does own 1,300 acres of Kauai, one of the less populated Hawaiian islands. As for the rest of the items on the list, Facebook has them. It's even developing its own money. It used to be called the Libra. Now it's the Diem. Um, in his writings on nationalism, the political scientist and historian Benedict Anderson suggested that nations are 
not defined by their borders, but by imagination. I know this gets kind of touchy-feely here, but the concept here is the nation is ultimately imaginary because its citizens will never know most of their fellow members of the nation, right? They're not going to know them, not going to meet them, not even going to hear of them. But in the minds of each lives the image of their communion. Communities, therefore, are distinguished most of all by the style in which they are imagined, right? And think about it in terms of, like, like what does it mean to be an American, right? And if you, like, I, like, these are the terms that I think of uh, and think in, right? What does it mean to be American? We are all Americans. That is a unifying concept. And there are other people, notably on the left, that want to fragment that image, break it all apart, and think have people think in terms of smaller groups because it then uh, is easier to pit them against one another in order to uh, advance particular political agendas. The uh, democratization of publishing is miraculous. Uh, LaFrance goes on to write, I still believe that the triple revolution of the internet, smartphones, and social media is a net good for society, but That's true only if we insist on platforms that are in the public's best interest, and Facebook is not. Facebook is a lie-disseminating instrument of civilizational collapse. It is designed for blunt force emotional reaction, reducing human interaction to the clicking of buttons. The algorithm guides users inexorably towards less nuanced, more extreme material, because that's what's most efficiently Uh, induces a reaction. Users are trained implicitly to get reactions to what they post, and that perpetuates the cycle. Facebook executives have tolerated the promotion on their platform of propaganda, terrorist recruitment, even genocide. They point to democratic virtues like free speech to defend themselves while dismantling democracy itself. See, this is how you know she's of the left. Because she's halfway to making a fantastic point, which is that Facebook will use democratic virtues like free speech to defend itself. But what do they do? They take down other people for exercising free speech, right? But she doesn't say that because that's not what she's in this for. She's in this for more regulation, right? This is, again, the the path of the statist is always the same. It's always towards more state, right? It's always towards a bigger state, more expansive state. These hypocrisies, she says, are by now as well established as Zuckerberg's reputation for ruthlessness. Facebook has conducted psychological experiments on its users without their consent. It built a secret tiered system to exempt its most famous users from content moderation rules. I went over this a couple of weeks ago, right? Um, It suppressed internal research into Instagram's devastating effects on teenage mental health. It has tracked individuals across the web, creating shadow profiles of people who never even registered for Facebook. Did you know that? So a lot of people, they they pride themselves on not having a Facebook account. Don't worry, Facebook made one for you. Yeah, it created an account for you. And by the way, I think I probably encounter a lot of these. I get friend requests from accounts that have nothing in them but they have mutual friends of mine, you know? Um, Facebook sold itself to us by promising to be an outlet for free expression, for connection, for community, and to share, you know, cat videos. In fact, 
It's a weapon against the open web, against self-actualization, and against democracy. All of this so Facebook can dangle your data in front of advertisers. To one degree or another, this is something Facebook has in common with its subsidiary, Instagram, as well as its rivals, uh, Google, YouTube, which, which Google owns, as well as Amazon, right? They all position themselves as somehow noble while they sell you, right? By the way, that is the, like, that's the secret here. If you don't know what they're selling you, like, nothing's free, right? So if you're offered this free platform and you don't know what they're selling you, the product is you, okay? Facebook's rise is part of a larger autocratic movement, one that's eroding democracy worldwide as authoritarian leaders set a new tone for global governance. Consider how Facebook portrays itself as a counterbalance to superpowers like China. Company executives have warned that attempts to interfere with Facebook's untrammeled growth through regulating the currency that it's developing, for example, that this would be a gift to China, which wants its own cryptocurrency to be dominant. And China does, by the way, right? But think about that. What is Facebook telling us? That they're actually competing with China the way a nation would. Perhaps Americans have become so cynical that they have given up on defending their freedom from surveillance and manipulation and exploitation. But if Russia or China were taking the exact same actions to undermine democracy, Americans would surely feel differently. Seeing Facebook as a hostile foreign power could force people to acknowledge what they're participating in and what they're giving up when they log in. And in the end, it doesn't really matter what Facebook is. It matters what Facebook is doing. Now, could enough people come together to bring down the entire empire? Probably not. Even if Facebook lost a billion users, it would still have like another two billion left. But we need to recognize the danger we are in. We need to shake the notion that Facebook is a normal company or that its hegemony is inevitable. That's Adrian LaFrance at The Atlantic. Brett Winterbull coming up next. Stay tuned. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. I'll talk with you tomorrow. Don't break anything while I'm gone.